Well, our sermon this morning comes from Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Luke 13, verse 1, you'll find that on page 872 in the Pew Bible in front of you. I would encourage you this morning to have a copy of God's Word open as we consider the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ as He continues to teach us during these travel narratives in the Gospel of Luke on how we might follow Him. And so Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable... A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should not bear fruit next year, well, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word this morning. Even when it uh, is challenging for us to hear. We are thankful for the words and the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. But far, we are far more thankful for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That in your amazing love, our God should die for sinners like us. May we be captured by that love today. May it rise in our hearts like a shining star that eclipses all the other loves that distract us that we may be reminded by your word, through your spirit, that we are made for you and that our eternal joy and delight is found in knowing you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Fifteen years ago to this day, on September 11th in 2001, Our lives were changed forever. It was a Tuesday morning at 8.46 a.m. I was happened to be sitting in seminary in my New Testament survey class when American Airlines Flight 11, flying from Boston to California, flew into the 95th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center complex, instantly killing everyone on board and hundreds uh, in the uh, tower trapping many more hundreds above on the floors above. 
And as, as we watched what considered, uh, what we all considered, I think, to be a freak accident, it was 17 minutes later, just after 9 a.m. and that 9 a.m. that United Airlines Flight 175 turned sharply and struck the 80th floor of the South Tower. 56 minutes later, at 9:59 a.m., the 110-story South Tower collapsed. At 10:28, just 30 minutes later, the North Tower shared the same fate. And while uh, New York had captured the world's attention, as millions watched these events unfold, American Airlines Flight 77 circled Washington, D.C., eventually crashing into the western side of the Pentagon. Its jet fuel caused an inferno that killed 125 military and civilian personnel. A fourth plane... Fourth California-bound plane, United Airlines Flight 93, also changed course and was headed to D.C. But because the plane was delayed in its takeoff, the passengers prior to boarding had learned of the events already that morning. And knowing that their plane was not returning to the airport, as the hijackers claimed, a handful of passengers and a flight attendant intended, intended to fight back. One passenger in particular, Thomas Burnett, told his wife over the phone, I know we are all going to die. There's three of us who are going to do something about it. I love you, honey. Shortly after he hung up, uh, United Airlines Flight 93 flipped over and sped towards the ground, crashing in a rural field in western Pennsylvania. When it was all over, 2,996 people were killed. Over 400 of them voluntarily as first responders sacrificed their own lives to save the lives of other Americans. Those who remained, many of them, were left asking a question. Why? Not simply why do people do such a terrible act, though that is a difficult question to answer as well, but more specifically, why would God allow it? This, by the way, is not the first time we've asked that question, is it? Nor was it the last. We asked it three years later on December 26, in 2004, when a tsunami struck Indonesia, killing 230,000 people. We asked it on January 12, in 2010, when 150,000 people were killed by buildings collapsing in Haiti, struck by a powerful earthquake. We've asked it over and over again in France, in Turkey, in Belgium, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Nigeria, and of course again and again in our own country, in America. And we want to know why. What is going on? This is not an American question. This is a human question. We do not simply ask it in our modern day. You see from the passage before us, this is the same question they asked 2,000 years ago. They go to Jesus in the midst of tragedy, and they want to know why these things are happening. Jesus' answer is perplexing. It is not particularly comforting. It is, I think, even offensive to our sensibilities. Why are these things happening? They ask Jesus. Jesus turns to them and says, instead of worrying about why it's happening, why don't you worry about yourself? Worry about what will happen to you. 
It reminds me of the conversation that Jesus had with Peter. You remember that after Jesus' resurrection? And, and Jesus and Peter are, are there uh, by the uh, seashore. And, and Jesus says, Peter, listen, right now you're free. You do whatever you want. You go where you want. You say what you want. But days coming when people are going to grab you and they are going to take you someplace you do not want to go. And, and in saying this, Jesus is telling Peter how Peter's going to die. He's going to be crucified by the Roman Empire. And, and Jesus is letting Peter know this. And, and, and Peter's response is almost humorous, isn't it? He's, he's sitting there by the fire and, and, and by the seashore and Jesus is telling him this. And Peter's thinking for a moment and then he looks across the fire and there's John, right? And Peter says, well, what about him? What's what's going to happen to him? And we're like Peter, I think. We we don't, you know, Jesus says, Peter, they're going to crucify you. And he says, okay, well, but what about John? Right? You always liked him best. Right? The beloved disciple. Lying in your bosom. What's going to happen to him? And, And Jesus gives us an answer that drives us crazy. Don't worry about John. Worry about yourself. If John dies at a nice old age, John gets rich, has a wife and children and grandchildren and lives a comfortable life, are you telling me I can't do that? Worry about yourself. You follow me. Now, we, we, see, we don't get to go to God and say, listen, you need to come under my expectations and the way you run this world needs to fit with my sensibilities. We, we want, of course, God to explain everything to us. We want everything to sit well with us. I want to remind us this morning that God is God. This is His world. He made it. And He does with it what He pleases. He does not need your approval. Rather, you are called to submit to Him even when what He does confounds all of your understanding. He is the one who made it all. He is the one who's running it all. And listen, if you don't like the way God's running the universe, let me say very humbly to you, you're probably wrong. Right? And he's probably right. And when things are hard, when you don't get your answers, or you get the answers and you don't like the answers, then you have the question, who's going who's gonna to sit on the throne of my heart? Who, who do I submit to? Is that easy? No. It's very, very hard. In fact, I, I, there is not much easy in this passage, is there? This is a hard passage. I want to warn you once again that... Uh, Many of you will not like this sermon. Let's just put it out there, okay? Many of you are going to... Um, I'm going to say some things and you're going to think... Uh, you probably shouldn't say that, Pastor. Um, and it, some of you are going to be offended by what I have to say today. And, and, and this is a, a difficult passage. I say it not because I want to say it. Um, I say it because I think it's faithful to what Jesus taught us. And so let me give you... Uh, before we get into the text, let me give you four... four realities to keep in your mind in order to get you through this sermon, okay? So you're going to need help maybe to get through the sermon. Let me give you four suggestions on how to listen to the sermon. First of all, check everything I say with what Christ is teaching us, okay? So uh, I, I, I pray and I have been praying that what I'm saying is not what I want to say, but what Christ says. In fact, I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say it anyways, because I think that's what Christ says. So check what I say. Right? And, and see if it, it is what the Lord says. Number two, if Christ never offends you, you've probably never met him. Okay? 
Many people have a relationship with God and God never happens to disagree with them. And that everything they think, that's what God thinks. Well, I'll tell you, you don't really have a relationship with God. You have created yourself to be God. You and God are different, right? And you and God think differently. And, and Jesus will contradict you. He will disagree with you. He will offend you if you let him. That is natural, I think. If he is holy and we're not, there should be some degree of disagreement there. And so, so not only check what I say, but let Christ offend you. That's okay. That probably means you're actually listening to him. Number three, don't give in to your natural desire to avoid heavy and difficult truths. Right? We don't like, I think, to deal with difficult truths, and so we avoid it. Right? What do we do with our free time? Do we sit around and think about difficult things? Most likely not. We occupy ourselves with silly things and happy things and trivial things. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but listen, we need to have time to actually think about hard things. I remember when I first started preaching, someone pulled me aside, uh, like before my second or third sermon, and they said, let me give you some advice, Stephen. Um, you need to keep it light. <laughs> right? we, want, we want stories and we want to giggle and, you know, we want to be happy and kind of leave here, you know, just kind of bounding out the door. And, and, and there's, there's time for that, isn't there? But if all we do is consider shallow truths, does that not just make us shallow people? And, and I wonder if, there's, if there is a time to carve out to consider heavy and difficult things. It, I don't know of a better time than do it when we gather together as God's people to hear from Him on Sunday morning. So, um, check what I say. Let Christ defend you. Don't give in to your natural desire to avoid these things. And number four, come back next week. Much happier sermon, right? Okay? I can't, I've already wrote the sermon. I, can't, I almost want to just preach it now and uh, skip this passage. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. So, I'm looking forward to next week. So, um, hopefully that will help you. Jesus here in our passage is asked a question about falling towers. It is um, perhaps not a mere coincidence that in my sermon schedule that this text happened to fall upon this day. And when he's asked this question about it, he gives an answer that's totally unique and contrary to our wisdom. Notice verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He is informed of a brutal massacre. We don't have any historical account of this event other than Luke 13 and verse 1. But I think you know, we could imagine what it was. These Galileans, of course, are down in Jerusalem. They, they've traveled down. And most likely they've traveled down for the Passover because they're offering sacrifices, which is what they would do on the Passover day. This is their ordinary religious activity, a religious high day for them. And while they're offering sacrifices in the temple court, Roman soldiers come running into the temple courts and run these Galileans through with their swords. They kill them. And the result is that the blood of the Galileans is mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. Whether the Romans did that intentionally to mock them, took their blood and literally put it in the blood with the sacrifices, or simply their blood was spilled through the massacre and thereby mixing with the blood of the sacrifices, we don't know. But it is, a, a, without a doubt, a, an unbelievably terrible event. It'd be, the equivalent would be like if we were ha- on a communion Sunday and we all had our cups raised and were about to drink together and, and the, the police came in and, and, and opened fire and, and blood sprayed everywhere, even into the communion cups. That's, that's how terrible this is. And, and, so, and by the way, let me just give you a footnote. If you are growing dismayed, as I kind of am, with the political season, just consider the politics of other places and other times. Right? And be thankful for what we have. And, and another, let me give you another footnote. Um, 
there is a tendency that I've heard to give, you know, uh, we look at Pilate and give Pilate a free pass. Like, you know, Pilate was kind of weak and didn't want to kill Jesus and kind of just gave in, but he, he wasn't as bad as we make him out to be. Well, if you're attentive to that view, uh, I don't know what you do with Luke 13.1. He's a terrible, terrible man, a brutal uh, dictator. And so there's, there's this massacre. But that's not the only event that's happened. Look in verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed... Right? And so evidently there is a sudden tower collapse near the, uh, the pool of Siloam in southeast Jerusalem. An accident. This tower falls, kills 18 people, ordinary people, just on their way to work. The tower falls and kills them. I love the fact, by the way, that Jesus knows it was 18 people who died. He doesn't say, hey, have you heard about the bunch of people who died with the tower collapse or the couple dozen who died or the 17 or the 19 who died? He says, have you heard about the 18 people who died? I mention that because in these tragedies that we we have around the world, we have these mass graves. You think about the earthquake in Haiti and they're throwing unnamed bodies into graves with seven, eight, ten thousand people just burying them with dirt and they don't even know who they're burying. Jesus knows. He knows exactly who died. He says, have you heard about those 18? Right? And so we have two tragedies. A man-made terrorist attack and a natural disaster. Right? A terrible atrocity and a tragic accident. And when these troubles come, people want to know why. why. Why didn't God stop it? Who's to blame? There's something in us that demands an answer to that question. And it doesn't matter if you're religious or not, right? You could be an atheist or you could be a Christian or anywhere in between. And you're going to ask that question. It's in our heart. We want to know. Now, there are two normal ways to answer that question. Almost everyone comes up with one or two answers. The first answer we might call the religious moralistic answer. Okay? And it goes like this. If you're a good person, good things happen to you. If you're a bad person, well, bad things happen to you. And so if a tragedy hits you, you must have some secret sin that no one knows about, but God knows about it, and God has um, struck you down. This is what they are thinking the answer is. We know this from how Jesus responds to them in verse 2. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Yes, that's what they are thinking. We see it again in verse 4. Or those 18 on whom in the tower in Siloam fell and killed. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the other others who lived in Jerusalem? See, he knows why they're asking. They want to know, do these people deserve it? Right? Bad things happen to bad people, right? And, and this is, again, not just their answer. This is what, how we answer today. Tsunami hits Indonesia, and you turn on television and find out why, and you find people who call themselves Christians saying, you know why, God? It's the naked sun worshipers and the sex traffickers, and God is judging that land. Or you want to know why Katrina strikes New Orleans? Well, it's because of gambling and, and voodoo and, and, and the debauchery of Mardi Gras, and God's clearly judging that, that town. And this is the answer people give. This is how religious, moralists, look at falling towers. Who's to blame? The people are to blame. That's their answer. But there's another answer that is often given. This is given by non-religious people. We might call it the secular naturalist answer. They don't blame the people. They blame life. Life is unfair. They blame the universe. They even uh, will blame God. Right? If you have a terrible life, you know, just, well, life stinks, doesn't it? God's unfair. Of course, these people never mention God until tragedy happens. 
Right? You just turn on the news after tragedy and watch one of these news guys interviewing a, a religious person. Larry King is famous for this, right? Um, and, and we'll never talk about God until tragedy happens. And then God gets his cameo. We allow God to walk on stage so we could all blame him, right? And this is what, what, what we do. Like, where was God? They go, okay, religious man, where was your God? God is clearly unfair. Now, what I find interesting is that the secular-minded people, they never say in result to, of tragedies, too bad. You know, sorry, Haiti, you should build better buildings. Right? They never say that. That's abhorrent to us. But, th- but this is what I want them to do. Explain the fact that we care deeply for people across an ocean that we'll never see by your worldview of evolution. Because shouldn't evolution tell us, well, those are people who, who are weak people who do not know how to build buildings properly and so they got what they want. Do we want not survival of the fittest, right? Too bad for you. No, we don't say that. No one says that. That's abhorrent to us. And the reason why is even as, as hard as we try to suppress it, God has put His imprint upon our heart. And we know even though we deny Him, we know we ought to love people and care for those who are hurting even if we reject Him. So you have two, the two answers. You have the religious people saying, listen, it's it's, uh, it's the people are to blame, and the secular people say God's to blame. Right? You blame, blame those under the tower, or you blame Him who's above the tower. Okay? And, and Jesus says, both your answers are ridiculous and even harmful. And what's even more surprising is Jesus comes in the midst of these tragedies, and He says, maybe you should use the tragedy to begin to think about your own end. Specifically, whether you should repent or not. He begins to talk about repentance. As we see, first of all, tragedies teach us to repent. That's what he says there in verse 3. They say, well, are these Galileans worse sinners? Jesus says, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are the people who the tower struck worse sinners? Jesus answers verse 5, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus is addressing the religious moralistic answer, isn't he? Jesus says, you think they're worse. Should we blame those under the tower? Unequivocally, he answers, no. Please understand that, Christian. You do not have the prerogative to draw a connection between some type of disaster in in one man's life or thousands of people's lives to some sin in which they have committed. We We have 66 books in the Bible. We have an entire book in the Bible dedicated to answering that question. It's called the book of Job, and the answer is no. You cannot make that connection. In fact, Jesus deals with this in the man born blind in John chapter 9. Remember him? The problem with to the religious moralistic mindset is this man was born blind. So how can God be punishing him for his sin if he hasn't even committed sin because he was born with blindness, right? It can't be God responding to his sin. That's how he was born. So they're confused. And they come to Jesus and say, wait a second, Jesus. In John chapter 9, they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Maybe it's his parents' fault. And Jesus answered, Luke, uh, John 9, 3, Neither! It's not about their sin. You don't have the right to say tragedy happens, therefore they must have some kind of sin. You can't blame the people. So, so does that mean the secular naturalists are right? I mean, that's what we've been saying all along. 
Right? The non-religious people say, that's right, Jesus, that's what we've been saying. You can't blame them. God's unfair. Life's unfair. Right? If it's, if it's not a punishment for sin, then what? Life stinks. If they don't deserve the tower to fall on them, and it falls on them as well, uh, uh, anyways, who's to blame then? If you, if you don't blame those under the tower, you have to blame them above the tower. But Jesus won't let us do that as well. Because His answer there in verse 3 and verse 5 is not simply no... If all he said was no, then the secularists would say, okay, we're right. But he goes on and says, you better repent or you will perish too. So what does he say? The question is, are, are they worse sinners? No, they are ordinary sinners just like you. They're not worse sinners. You are just as bad as they are. And if you don't repent, you'll get what they got. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, when he says they're not worse, he is not saying that they didn't get what they deserved. You understand that? He is not saying that they got something that they did not deserve. Instead, he is saying they got what we all deserve. And if God gave you what you deserved, a tower would fall on you. The assumption that we have is that God owes us an easy, comfortable life. Jesus assumes the opposite. Considering how we treat God, how we treat others, how we live our lives to Jesus, it's amazing that this doesn't happen more often. We are not the good people we imagine. We are lost sinners in danger of perishing. Therefore, I think what he's teaching us is what should amaze us is not this tragedy, but that you and I have been spared of the tragedy and given one more opportunity to repent. I tell you, every tragedy we experience, whether it be personal or national, it, to those who remain is God's merciful warning to them to prepare to meet with Him. Their, their departure is a reminder that ours is coming soon. You know, one thing that these tragedies don't change is the, is the certainty of death, right? We're all going to die. And some will die in terrible acts by the thousands, and others will die individually, but we're all going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. It might be a terrorist attack. It might be a tornado. It, it, it might be cancer. I, I don't know, but I do know this. I'm going to die, and so are you. And so how I die and how you die ultimately, ultimately is irrelevant. The point of these tragedies is to shake us, to prepare us for our own demise by repenting. And yet many people just miss it. Many people miss it. One man who survived the Indonesia tsunami by clinging to a jungle gym while 230,000 people died around him concluded, quote, I am left with an immense respect for the power of nature. The point of that tsunami, at least a point of that tsunami, was not to give us a respect for creation. It was to give us a reverence for the Creator. It's not the first to miss it. The prophet said in Amos 4, verse 10, I killed your young men with the sword, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. We will keep missing it until the end. Revelation 16, verse 9. They cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues, and they did not repent. And so I would, I would suggest to you humbly by what I believe the Lord is teaching is that do not miss the opportunity, even as we consider the 15th anniversary of our own tragedy, one of the things that God wants to do through this tragedy is save the lost. But we must repent. 
Tragedies not only teach us to repent, they teach us why to repent. The question you might have is, why is repentance the way to prevent perishing? Right? He says twice, if you don't repent, you're going to perish. Right? Well, then therefore, perishing must be something different than a, than a natural death, right? If re- repenting is not going to keep me from dying, it will keep me from perishing. So perishing must be different than death. And the Bible will use perishing in this way. John 3.16, you know that one? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not, what is it? Perish. But have everlasting life. Is He saying you should not die? No, you're going to die, but you won't perish. See, perishing is put in opposition to eternal life. There's a number of other verses, 1 Corinthians 1.18, 1 Corinthians 15.18, that I would refer, would refer to if I had time. The perishing is uh, the eternal punishment that people receive after death if they have not repented. Now, I understand people chafe against this idea. People, people in our land want to think everyone goes to heaven except the really, really bad people. Okay? And I understand that's in, in our hearts. And if that's in your heart, the, old, the, the, the only thing I'm asking you to do is to realize that's not in Christ's heart. That is not what he's teaching. There is no way to look at Luke 13.3 and Luke 13.5 and to conclude that pretty much everyone ends up in heaven. He is, in fact, suggesting the, the opposite. That we're all headed to hell unless we do something about it. And that something is repent. When he showed up, the first sermon that Jesus ever preached, Mark 1.15, the kingdom of, hand, kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. When he sent out his apostles, Mark 16, 6 verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. When he ascended into heaven, Luke 24.47, we were told repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. His first, the first sermon ever preached after the ascension of Christ, Acts 2, verse 37. When Peter was finished preaching, they all said, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent. So what is it? What is repentance? Well, one way to understand repentance has been helpful for me is to understand that repentance always begins in our mind. We might call it confession. Repentance always starts with agreeing with God about yourself, that you are a sinner. You confess that sin. You say, I break your law. I I love myself more than I love you. I'm self-righteous. I lie. I lust. I hate. I'm full of pride. It begins in your mind. You agree with God's assessment of you that you are a sinner, as the Bible tells us over and over again. Then repentance moves from the mind down into the heart. We go from confession to contrition. We go from a knowledge of sin to a sorrow of sin, right? Because many people will agree they're sinners, but will not be bothered about it. They'll just shrug their shoulders. That will not lead to salvation. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 10 and verse 13, that repentance looks like sackcloth and ashes. It's sorrow for what has happened. It's remorse. By the way, remorse is not regret. Many people regret their sin because of the consequences. They regret their sin because they've been caught. That is not remorse. We are to be sorrow, full of sorrow, because we have sinned against the God who made us, who loves us, who would redeem us. And it's out of that contrition that we call out to Him, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? That's the repentance cry. Forgive me. Without that cry, there is no forgiveness. This is why we must repent. It goes from contrition, uh, confession to contrition, from the mind to the heart, and then it goes to the will. We might call that change. Confession, contrition, change. When we repent, we begin to turn away from sin and we begin to follow God. Our lives are different. 
We begin to submit to Him. He becomes the King in our life, the Lord. We begin to follow Him. Right? That's what repentance looks like. Have you repented? That's what Jesus wants to know this morning. Have you confessed your sin to Him? Do you have contrition in your heart? Have you changed your life? Have you resolved to live for God and not for sin? I tell you, based upon the authority of God's Word in Luke 13, verse 3, repent or you will likewise perish. If you repent, God will forgive all your sins based on the work of Jesus Christ. If you don't repent, you will hold on to your sin and you will be punished for them. Those are your options. Repent or perish. It is an option for everyone who lives. Repent or perish. As we see thirdly, tragedies teach us who must repent. Who must repent? Now, when terrible things happen to us, when trouble comes, when, when our health fails, when the money runs out, when the relationships are broken, when we're full of sadness or difficulty or trouble, throughout the Bible, you will find words of comfort and encouragement and counsel. Right? But this is not one of those passages. This passage is not for the hurting. It is for those who are not hurting. Right? These, these, he's not talking to hurting people. He's addressing the people who didn't have the tower fall upon them. Right? In other words, for these people, life is going well. Right? When towers fall, but they don't fall upon you, what does Jesus suggest you do? Repent. Right? When, when everything's going well, your family's good, got enough money, career's taken off, you're, you're in love with your wife, kids are obeying, everything's good, beware, is what Jesus is saying. You are in danger. As Tim Keller has put it, there is no greater spiritual crisis than to have no crisis. Wait, who's he talking to? He's talking to his followers, right? These are not notorious sinners. These are not prostitutes and tax collectors. These are the churchgoers. These are the rule keepers. And he says to them, you better repent. So the question then is repent of what? I mean, not repent of their prostitution and their tax collection and all the, all the rest. What should they repent of? Well, he's telling them to repent for feeling superior to those who encounter the tragedy. Right? He, they feel like there are better people than those who are suffering. He's telling the religious moralists that, that you need to repent of your self-righteousness. Right? Because what we think is good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And, and I'm telling you, you think that way. It is in your heart. It is in all of our hearts. Right? If, if your career is going well and someone's career is failing and you look at their life and they're showing up late to work and they're not putting in the extra time and, and you're dutiful and diligent and hardworking, and then what do you do? You say, well, you know, I, you know I'm, my work is going well because I'm savvy and dutiful and hardworking. If, you're, if your church is growing and someone else's church isn't growing... And you see, well, man, I put a lot of work in my sermons. I pray, and this person's just pulling them off the shelf, and he's just winging it, and he's not working hard. And you, what do you do? You say, well, you know, my, my, my church is growing because I, I'm, I'm engaging, and I work hard, and I'm praying, and that's why it's growing. And his is not because he's not doing it. Or your, or your children are obeying, honoring you, other family, children not. You look at your life and say, well, you know, we're praying with our kids and we're disciplining them according to the biblical instruction and we're training them in our, on our beliefs and they're clearly not. And so my children are well behaved. Why? Because I must be kind and dutiful and a hardworking parent. 
Now, am I saying there's no connection between kids' behavior and parenting and all the rest? Of course I'm not saying that. The Bible tells us there's a connection over and over and over again. My question is, why is your parenting more biblical than someone else's? Right? Why are you spending more time in your sermons and prayer than another pastor? Why are you a more faithful worker than someone else? Could it just be God's grace in your life? Could it be that God is working in you? Do not think they're worse parents because your children are good and theirs are uncontrollable. No, I tell you, repent is what the Lord is telling us. If you have well-behaved kids and successful careers and a happy life, you know what you ought to do? You ought to repent. Repent of what? Self-righteousness. Because what happens in all of us is we begin to start taking credit for God's grace in our lives, don't we? Right, something's good happening to me. It must be that I've done something good. Your life can't be grace, right? No, you've earned it. You worked hard. And what we do is we infer from superior circumstances to a superior character, not superior grace. Right? Everything's good. Family's good. Everyone else's life's a mess. We start to think, well, I must be doing all right. I must be good. You know who you become like? The older brother. Remember him in Luke 15? Parable of the prodigal sons. Younger brother goes out, riotous living, re- reckless life, wishes dad was dead, takes his money, spends it on prostitutes, comes home. What does he get? Grace. Just lavish grace. Parties thrown, ring on his finger, you know, kill the fatted calf. We're celebrating. Just grace and grace and grace. Where's the older brother? He's outside with his arms crossed and he's saying, wait a second. I've stayed home and I've worked hard, and I've honored you, and I've loved you, and he gets all that, and what do I get? You see what he's doing? He is taking credit for all of his righteousness. Could it just be that he stayed home and honored dad because God was giving him more grace than his younger brother, right? I'm telling you, if there's anything good in you, my friend, anything lovely, anything worthy of pointing at, any bit of self-discipline, any freedom from sin, any success in marriage or with your children, that is God's grace to you. And you ought not to take God's grace and turn it into smug self-congratulations and self-righteous judgmentalism towards people who have not received the grace in which God has given to you. Repent. Of your self-righteousness. And in case you think I'm missing the point of this text, I encourage you to write this verse down. 1 Corinthians 15.10. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul is talking about his, his uh, kind of autobiography. He's talking about the other apostles. And he's saying, you know, I don't deserve to be called an apostle. I was killing Christians and all the rest. But he says, listen, what he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace in me was not towards vain. Listen, on the contrary... I worked harder than any of them. Paul, why are you so much more um, fruitful than all the other apostles? Why are you writing books and planting churches? why, Why are you doing so much more than all the other apostles? Paul says, you know why? I worked harder than any of them. Is he patting himself on the back? No, finish the verse. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. 
See what he's saying? The reason why this is going well in my life is not because uh, I'm a better person than them, I have better character than them, it's because God has been gracious in my life. Don't you dare take the good in your life as anything other than the grace of God in your life. Don't take God's work, which is intended to cause a, a gratitude rising up in your heart and a worship rising in your heart, and turn it into this smugness and this judgmentalness, and we look down our nose at people who did not receive the grace in which God has lavished upon you. Don't rob God of His credit. And, by the way, rob you of the joy. Do you have joy when you pat yourself on the back? Or do you have joy when you think, God, have you really given me this much grace? Some of you have trouble worshiping because you don't know the extent in which God is lavishing you with His kindness and His goodness. In fact, Romans 2, 4, we sang this. You sang this this morning. You sang the verse. Just quoted it. Romans 2, 4. Do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that, here it is, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Hear that? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So when God is kind to you, when the tower does not fall on you, but instead you build the tower and sell it for a million bucks... Right? When wonderful things are happening to you, that is designed by God to do what? Lead you to repentance. Good things in your life, success are given to you by God so you can repent. Bad things in your life, failures in your life are given to you by God so you can repent. As Martin Luther told us, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. See, if you think repentance is simply stop doing bad things, you don't understand it completely. Oh, it includes that. But repentance is also stop taking credit for the good things. That's God's work. Do you take credit? Bad things happen to you. Do you think, oh, bad things happen to other people. Do you think, well, they're just getting what they deserved. Good things happen to you. You think, I'm getting what I have earned. I do. I do. I, I, have, I have been impacted by this idea from studying Luke 13 probably more than I have been impacted by the Word of God in a year. I, I believe I will be eternally changed because of, of this passage. I remember, um, it was about six months ago, a year ago, that, uh, remember that Ashley Madison whole thing? Remember that Ashley Madison, for you who don't know, is a, is a website. If you're married and you want to have an affair... You, you sign up to the website, and then other people sign up, and you could find people to have affairs with, right? And, um, and there was a data breach, right? The one thing you don't want to happen is for your spouse to find out you signed up for the website, right? That's bad. Well, someone hacked into Ashley Madison and published everyone who signed up. And there were politicians and pastors and celebrities and all this hoopla, I mean, the blog writer that I read was on Ashley Madison. And, and you know what happened in my heart? Good. I'm glad they're getting what they deserve. I'm glad they've been found out. And there, I, I believe there was even a sense of satisfaction, maybe even joy in my heart. You know what I never thought of doing? It's falling on my knees and thanking God for His grace, which has kept me faithful to my wife. I took credit for the grace of God for 
working in me to be a faithful man, congratulated myself for what God has done in my life, and looked down on my nose in a judgmental and critical heart. Repent. In the bad times, yes. Repent in the good times, yes. Give God the credit for everything good in your life, and you get the joy and the, and the delight and the worship of Him. Lastly and quickly, tragedies teach us when to repent. When shall we repent? Verse 6, And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it. Right? So there's an a, a orchard owner. He wants to find fruit on his fig tree. The owner... We don't have time to, where you just take my word for it. Owner's God, you're the tree. Okay? Fruit is repentance. Luke 3 7. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So God shows up, He's looking at your life, and what does He want to see? Repentance. He wants to see that you've turned from sin, you've turned from self righteousness, you've turned from self rule. God expects us to be fruitful. There's a brand of Christianity out there that says God came to save, right? Give me eternal life. Doesn't matter how I live. That's nonsense. Read the Bible. God wants to transform us. He wants to make you productive. He wants your life to impact others, influence others, build His kingdom, serve His church, right? He wants you to be fruitful. And, and He comes looking for this tree which is not fruitful, as you see at the end of verse 6, and found none. The owner's conclusion is found in verse 7. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years... Um, now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground, right? That's perfectly reasonable. Three years, fertile soil, sun, water. Year one, nothing. Year two, nothing. Year three, nothing. It's an annual disappointment to the owner. It's a worthless tree using up the space in the ground. Just cut it down, he says. Just like we read in Luke nine, uh, 3, 9. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what does cut down mean? It means it's perishing. That's what Jesus was referring to in verse 3 and verse uh, 5. It's eternal judgment from God. Right? This is in the context of repentance. And so, and, and so he could end the parable there, right? Okay. No fruit? What happens? You perish. If you don't, per- you don't bear fruit, you're going to perish. You're going to cut down. But that's not where it ends. Praise God. Because there is this sudden intercession. Look in verse 8. And, and he, that's the vine dresser, answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Right? He's, this guy comes and says, give it one more year. Now the owner's God. Who's the vine dresser? Well, that's God too. Okay? They're both God. Okay? And, and what we see here, that we see over and over in Scripture, there's this, this, this tension in God where there's anger over sin. Yes, there's, 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 there's anger when he, we belittle His holiness. There's no doubt about that. And at the same time, God is patient and loving and abounding in mercy and, and slow to judgment, right? And instead of cutting it down, right? That's, so we, we could read, and the vine just cut it down and threw it in the fire. We don't read that, right? Instead of saying that, uh, we, God says, I'm going to work a little harder. <laughs> I'm going to try a little longer. I'm, I'm going to wait a little longer. Right? In, in the middle of this very tense passage, there's hope. There's patience. There's love. Praise God. He says, let's give it some more time. 
His heart is not to cut us down. His delight is not for us to perish. His heart is to give us more time, is to work on you and work on you and work on you to bring you to repentance. He says, let's dig around it, right? Let's, let's put on manure, right? Let's, let's work on it. And that's maybe what He's doing right now in your life. Maybe by this sermon, God is engaging you and reminding you and warning you, right? This sermon is manure, right? Isn't it? This first thing you agreed with me all morning long, right? <laughs> is it not? God wants to bring your repentance and so He is working in you. Maybe, maybe your life is hard. Maybe you're up to your neck in manure. Maybe life really stinks. Well, it just may be that God is, is, is just piling on the manure so He could bring a great harvest in your life, right? Listen, it takes manure to get fruit. It does. Life may stink today, but, but maybe what stinks today will be a cause of joy and fruitfulness tomorrow. I mean, just listen to Jesus. Let, let this sink into your heart. In, in light of everything we said, he's, he's saying, listen, they deserve to be cut down, but I don't want to do it. I don't want to give them what they deserve. I want to bring them to repentance. I love how John Piper puts it. The really amazing thing in this universe is not that guilty sinners perish, but that God is slow to anger so that you and I can sit here this morning and have one more chance to repent. And by the way, that may be all the chance you get. Because God is not only patient, but there is a limit. You see that in verse 9. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, what? Cut it now. Please do not presume on the patience of God. Don't say, I'll repent next year, right? I'll go next year. You may not be able to. God is not your butler that you ring a bell and He comes running to help you repent. If He's working on your heart now, repent. He, he's no, under no obligation to continue to do so. You see the urgency there. You see verse 9, verse 8 is full of hope. Verse 9 is full of urgency. The opportunity to repent will end. Well, that's the end of the story. It's not much of a conclusion, is it? Because we don't know what happens to that tree. If it does this, good and well, if it repents. If, if not, well, then we're going we're gonna to cut it down. There's two options. Repent or perish. We don't know what happens. Of course, you're the tree, aren't you? You finish the story. It's up to you. You bear fruit with keeping... With repentance, you turn from sin in your life, you turn towards God. Uh, what pleasure that would bring to God. Others may object as we end our time this morning. You say, well, what, you know, why should I even believe in this God? Why should I believe He's good when this world is so cruel? When you say God's in control, He's in control, then why is it so bad? Well, I would suggest to you the reason that you can is because of Jesus. In fact, without Jesus, you might even have a good reason not to believe that God is good. I, I still think we can make arguments that He is, but, but you know, Jesus came in this world, and, and what did He do when He came? He suffered. And not just the pain of a tragic accident or a terrible atrocity, He endured something infinitely worse. And not simply the pain of the crucifixion, but the wrath of God on Him as well. He took God's wrath on himself. He took God's pun the punishment for all your sins and all my sins. He took it upon himself. The tower fell on Jesus. He suffered. So why believe in a good God in a cruel world? Well, because the God we believe in was whipped and tortured by this world. 
Because the God we believe in was despised and betrayed and abandoned and denied in this cruel world. Because the God we believe in died in this cruel world. Because the God we believe in one day will end this cruel world without ending you and I. Because of the work in which He has done. And it is that God who has willingly gone to the cross for sinners such as you and I that says to you, repent. Repent before it's too late. The Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? that's repentance. I'm making Him my Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. There is still time for you. Will you not repent even now? Our Father in heaven, we love you. We're thankful for our Lord. We're thankful for our time to consider difficult matters. But my heart, so thankful for grace. There is no reason why I or anyone else in this room should not have tragedy upon tragedy upon us by the life we have lived, but you have lavished us with grace upon grace upon grace. Will you not, in your grace to those here who do not believe you, call them to faith? Will they see not only the terror of, uh, of, the, of the, their unwillingness to repent, but they will see the love of a God who is patiently working in their lives to bring them to salvation? And for the rest of us, will you please forgive us for our self-righteousness? Will you please forgive us when we are smug and condescending and judgmental towards those who have not received the grace in which you have lavished upon us? Will you please forgive us for robbing you of your glory and taking the credit for your work in our lives? I pray in your kindness that you would do work in my brothers and sisters, which you have already done in my life. You have put in my heart a a repugnance to the self-righteous which lives in there. Just root it out that we may be more like Christ, full of joy for the work he has done. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.